Hi, I'm Taylor Carman, a professor of philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I lecture and write books and articles on things like phenomenology and existentialism and the meaning of life. Hi, and the last time I checked, I was Eric Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And you are listening to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a philosophy podcast where we look at terrifying questions and try to find our way to a place where we can confront them with courage. Yeah, that's a great idea. So what's our terrifying question this week, Taylor? So this week, our question is, is being a good human being just a matter of luck? All right. And this is a reference to what exactly? Who, who wrote the classic work on moral luck? Uh, there's two of them. There's one by Bernard Williams and one by Tom Nagel. Uh-huh. Uh, those are papers written in the 1970s, but they're taking issue with an assumption about morality that you can find in Kant and Adam Smith, and maybe it's a kind of an assumption that goes all the way back to ancient Stoicism. Uh, the assumption was that you're really only responsible for things that are under your control, and maybe totally under your control. Right. And in a little bit, it was saying that the the sage will always be happy. Yeah. The sage, if you live your life with wisdom, you can be protected against the buffets of misfortune. Yeah, and it's because the Stoics thought that happiness just is virtue, so you're in control of your virtue. Kant didn't think that in this life being virtuous guaranteed your happiness, but he did think that whether you're a good person or did the right thing could be completely under your control. And we tend to not blame people for being unlucky. Right. Well, we, yeah. or at least we, we say that we don't. We, we usually aren't like, why don't you want to invite that guy to your party? Well, he, he loses all his money in in he lost all his money. So yeah. so I don't want to hang out with him. He, he's poor. Or, yeah. Like he got in a car crash and one of his legs is shorter than the other. I don't want to have him come over. He, he's yeah. broken. But, but you can say, do I don't like that guy. He's immoral. Yeah. I'm an he's immoral. Don't invite him to the party. He's a liar. Let's yeah. not go camping with him. Yeah. He's immoral. He's a liar. <laughs> yeah. So people do say, okay to blame people for their morality. It's less okay to blame people for just having a bad lot, yeah. having a bad break. It's a very strong um, intuition. It sort of seems right at face value. So like I said, a lot of people thought that's pretty clear, part of morality. And in fact, Bernard Williams, though he sort of kicked this discussion off, sounded like he was saying, look, there is this thing called moral luck. But it turns out he didn't think that there was such a thing as moral luck. He thought it was part of the idea of morality that you can be protected from luck by being virtuous. But he did think that luck affected all kinds of other aspects of your life that are broadly speaking ethical rather than strictly moral. So even the people right at the center of this debate sometimes seem to have conflicting intuitions about whether there really is such a thing well, as I, moral luck. I got the impression that when he says... According to morality, there's no such thing as moral luck. He viewed that as being all the worse for morality. I exactly. think he thought morality was a flawed, yeah. disingenuous way of approaching human life. Right. And he said that when he introduced, he introduced this phrase, moral luck. And he said when he introduced it, he meant it as an oxymoron because it was supposed to sound incoherent. Like, of course, there's no such thing as moral luck. But then his examples, for example, he talks about a fictionalized version of, of the life of Paul Gauguin which is taken from a novel by Somerset Maugham. And the novel is called The Moon and Sixpence. 
which tells this fictionalized story. Mm -hmm. Gauguin abandons his family and goes to Tahiti to paint paintings. And, you know, he doesn't have any guarantee that his paintings are going to be worth anything or good or his vocation as an artist is going to vindicate everything he did. That's really out of his control. So he has to take this huge risk. And But it affects what we think of him. If he painted garbage and didn't do anything useful, we, and he himself, might think, oh my God, what have I done? What a terrible person I am. Um, if he paints masterpieces and it's brilliant and it's sort of the fulfillment of the meaning of his life, you might think, well, you know, people have to make hard choices and maybe this is the right thing after all. But um, but that's a broadly ethical... Okay, hang, hang on just a second, Taylor. Yeah. This, seems, this seems a bit rough yeah. when we put it aside our contemporary intuitions about cancellation. Because I bet a lot of our listeners would be like yeah he was a jerk right who painted good paintings yeah who cares right exactly now does that mean our whole discussion can't get off the ground that that people have just maybe they've sort of thought a little more clearly and they're like well clearly if you're a good painter that's not about your morality so therefore if we're going to be consistent we cannot say that the family abandoning good painter is morally okay no that guy's a dirtbag yeah. But he was a good painter. Like, like, does, does, like, maybe that example doesn't work anymore. Well, I think that example isn't really an example of a pure case of moral luck. I think it's an example of something like, um, yeah, what you think of this person. I think you think less of the person if he uh, sacrificed his family uh, for nothing, as opposed to the happiness or well-being of his family for the sake of something that has real value, like his vocation as an artist. You might think, well, you might have done something differently, but it's understandable that people have to make hard choices like that. But there are pure cases of moral luck. Oh, I, I, hang on. Does, does this fix it? Um, there's a guy who's a complete jerk to his family in order to develop a cure for cancer, but he doesn't develop a cure for cancer. He develops yes. something that's a bogus cure for cancer. Yeah. And then yeah. there's another guy who abandons his family, you know, either literally or just by spending long nights at the lab. Yeah. And he does develop a cure for cancer. Right. Does that work? Maybe. That's right. Then you might think, well, look, he really did a good thing and it was a hard choice too, but what a what a hero he was. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so that's what makes me think that the cancel culture people at the end of the day are Philistines <laughs> who just don't care about her. Well, I think they're operating on a very... Uh, you know, I don't know if they're right or wrong, but they are making a more classically pure moral judgment. And they would have agreed with Kant that the morality of the act, the motivation, the will behind it is what matters morally. And the outcomes are irrelevant. Yeah, but that doesn't separate um, Gauguin, the artist, and Gauguin, the oncologist, um, because they have exactly the same... It's just it's I think the only way to get daylight yeah. between those two is if you don't think that paintings matter that much. And then you're like, well, clearly, right, we're going to be hard on the people who give up their families to make paintings and less hard yeah. on people who give up ah, their families. That's to, interesting. To that may, medicine. Yeah, that might be right. Exactly. Because I think Kant would say about the the cancer cure example that the morality of the two cases was the same. I think that people have a tendency to come up with some bogus extenuating circumstance in order to justify their incoherent moral intuitions. Yeah. So, for example, I think almost everybody will say, well, that guy who came up with the failed cancer drug, he probably wasn't working hard. <laughs> he was see. probably kidding himself. 
And I, I know why people say that, yeah. but I think they're wrong. I think they just do it to make their morality work out in a way that's comforting. Because I think it's perfectly possible to be sincerely deluded your whole yeah. life long. You've got a harder time denying the reality of moral luck the more you are a kind of utilitarian, the more you think that the outcomes or the consequences really do reflect on the morality of the action, you're going to have a harder time denying that there's an element of luck in the morality. You can deny moral luck if you're a Kantian, strict Kantian, because then you say the consequences are really irrelevant. It's all about the purity of your heart. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. That's right. A goodwill. All that matters. The only thing worthy, morally worthy is a goodwill, Kant says. It's a very powerful argument that we don't really make moral judgments like that. We we actually judge the actions differently depending on outcomes, consequences that are really not in anybody's control. Like the, the driver who's falling asleep at the wheel veers slightly off the road, and in one scenario there's somebody standing there and he hits them, and in the other scenario there wasn't a person standing there, so he wakes up and gets back on the road and nothing happened. Right. Um, now, some people will still say, look, that was a bad thing to do. And the moral badness is the same in the two scenarios, even if there's a legal difference in how we want to sort of hold people responsible. You know, we might have to worry about whether our legal response is different from our purely moral response, maybe. Um, hopefully the legal stuff will reflect the moral, but not always. Suppose uh, my house collapses on somebody and it kills them. You know, there might have been somebody standing there and there might not have been. And you could say, legally, I'm responsible because I, I didn't get it checked out as often as I should have. And if I had, I would have found out that the beams were rotting and it was dangerous. But I didn't know that. And you might think that I'm not really very responsible, but actually, as a matter of law, uh, it was my responsibility. So I have to pay a fine or something like that. So the legal questions might divert a little bit from the moral questions. Right. And, and sometimes when I, I think about cases like... Um you know, a serial killer, and he's done these horrible murders. Yes, yes. And he'll continue to do murders. Let's say he's even a serial killer who's who's like Hannibal Lecter. He's excellent at breaking out of jail. Um, but it's not his fault he's a serial killer because uh, his mother dropped him on his head repeatedly, <laughs> and right. he became a serial killer. Maybe. And, and then I almost feel that that's morally a bit like a rabid dog. Yeah. That yeah. you can execute that person... And you should feel sorry that you're doing it. Yeah. And it's a sad thing that that happened to that guy. But you shouldn't be angry at him because we're just doing it to protect ourselves. We're not actually making a moral judgment. Ah. Um, we're, we're making a pragmatic judgment about how we'll all be safer. And that is that if you find a really nasty serial killer, you give him the death penalty or you lock him up and throw away the key. And that's And that's not because it's his fault. It's just a way of protecting ourselves. Is that an idea that appeals to you? Well, it's closer to the way we phrased the question at the beginning, like, uh, is being a good person a matter of luck? Because the first kinds of cases we were considering were particular actions that are right or wrong. And now we're thinking about the kind of person you are. That really may be out of your control, largely. People maybe are born with a character. Now, I, I, I definitely, I, I have, for example, I have sympathetic pains in my legs. Mm. So anytime I hear about somebody in pain, mm. I get a pain in my leg. Really? I, and I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't. Literally. Literally. I mean, it's not, I don't fall over. Yeah. I mean, but I have definitely oh. an ache in my legs when wow. I hear uh, about anything that, you know, bad. Huh. Now, I, I, it's not, I didn't ask for that. It just kind of <laughs> came with my psychological development. So yeah. it's, if it's, let's say, 
that 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 is a virtuous disposition and in certain yeah. circumstances it is in certain circumstances it might not be but yeah. uh, let's imagine yeah. that it's a virtuous disposition it's yeah. just lucky that i got it right right and i mean i have something like that it's not quite that localized but i mean when i hear about terrible things happening to people or people being in great pain or suffering i get a awful feeling it's like a quasi physical feeling of clenching up and unpleasantness and that's yeah that's like compassion or sympathy and i imagine some people don't have that and that is a matter of luck so that's sometimes what's called like constitutive moral luck you're just constitutive born. moral luck yeah like, you, <laughs> right. if it's diagnosed properly early on yeah. what can you do about it you can um reduce the stakes a bit from that example and just say look some people are kind of narcissistic and some people are kind of glib and some people are kind of you know impulsive or jump to conclusions and all these little character qualities that are way short of like being a serial killer it you can see it manifest in the way they act and the things they do and it might lead them to be short with someone or you know a little bit thoughtless and these could be very minor infractions but it could look like it bubbles up from their character in a typical way. And maybe there's just not that much they can do about that sort of character profile that they've got. And they're kind of stuck with it. And um, you do judge them, though. We judge people on their character. You had an example you were telling me oh, yeah. recently. Yeah, I was telling you earlier. Yeah. So my father, Benjamin Kaplan, was a defense attorney. He was born in 1925. And he had a pretty good settlement and after uh the break i'll tell you more about my father okay so we're back and we're talking about moral luck and i was mentioning that my father ben kaplan for 50 years was a defense attorney on avenue b in manhattan and he told me when i was a kid the following parable and he said very often people end up getting judged as bad people and sent to prison and called murderers because of things that are not under their control mm -hmm. and he said imagine there are these two guys um let's call them chad and brad mm-hmm so Chad, they're both 18-year-old men, uh, volatile, hot-headed young men, as 18-year-old men often are. <laughs> and Chad walks into a bar, and he sees his girlfriend uh, kissing another man, and he gets really mad, and he reaches into his pocket and shoots this other man dead. And Brad uh, walks into a bar, sees his girlfriend kissing another man, and he's got no gun in his pocket. And he punches the other guy, and he does not commit murder. People separate them. And my dad, because he was a defense attorney, mm. would find himself defending somebody like um, Chad for murder. And ah. sometimes, you know, because, you know, sometimes the legal system functions and my, my dad's oratorical skills are not up to saving his client, <laughs> he gets convicted. Um, yeah. And it struck me that that's... Um, Ah. That's too bad. That's unfair. So he was giving you this example uh, when you were a wee lad. Yes. And I, it sounds like he was anticipating this philosophical debate about moral luck. Yeah, I sure think he was. Yeah. Um, Unless he had been reading that literature. No, he wasn't. Yeah. I guarantee that. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So he, he just looked at life from the point of view of um, 
kindness. Yeah. He was very kind. Interesting. Even to people who others would say are not deserving of our kindness. And I, I tend to think that that's admirable. Yeah. I tend to think that that's a good position, although I have heard the contrary view expressed in the Talmud, which is that mm. if you're kind to the cruel, eventually mm. you'll end up being cruel to the kind. Oh, in other words, interesting. if you're like, oh, that poor murderer, let's, uh -huh. let's let him out, he might murder more people. Um, yeah. Uh -huh. And shouldn't yeah. you... And, and then, oh, but here's another thing the Talmud might be thinking, mm. which is... Maybe my dad is letting people off too easy. Mm -hmm. And maybe what the man who mm. committed the murder ought to do is think about how he shouldn't have done that and how he should do better. Mm. And then maybe the true way for him to live his life is not to say, oh, man, I just was unlucky. But no, I was responsible for that. It led to the loss of a person's life. And I'm going to do better in the future. What do you think, Taylor? You might also say that the person who didn't have the gun in his pocket but just beat the guy up is really morally culpable and maybe even in a sense as much because he was really wishing harm on this person and that's bad in the same way that murdering the person was bad, even if it's to a different degree. Well, we're concerned but, about de degree. We're concerned about degree. I think nobody, nobody yeah. is using my dad's example to say they both should get Citizen of the Year Award. Nobody thinks that. <laughs> but what people tend to think is that the murderer, well, he's a murderer. Yeah, it's worse. It's clearly it's worse. It's worse. That's, that's as bad as you can get almost to be a murderer. And the other guy is not a murderer. He's a thug, perhaps. And by the way, we don't, we're not casting aspersion on the actual religion of Kali worship. I shouldn't use the word thug, oh, uh, oh. but he's a he's a, a brute. Oh. He's a bit of a brute. <laughs> he's he's a... a bad guy. Don't invite him to your wedding. He's not a good guy, but he's not a murderer. Right. We don't use the worst uh, right. vocabulary against him. Right, right. Um, but you can refine this example because, I mean, so the example as given invites the response, well, what was he doing with a gun? Why didn't he leave the gun at home? The one of them's got the gun. He's already worse than the guy who didn't have the gun with him. But make them. Yeah, but I think the not leaving the gun at home just convicts him of being a poor packer. Well, maybe. You know? maybe it and I'm, off, I'm often a poor packer. I often <laughs> no, no, find maybe in my it means... luggage. Something I didn't mean to bring or not brought something I should have brought. No, but maybe it means he's like willing to countenance the possibility that he might shoot somebody. He might need to. And the other person. A careless, yeah. but a here, careless packer. But in a way, this doesn't matter because we could refine the example in the uh -huh. way that this philosophical literature tends Let's to refine. Do by saying, make it the same person, the same exact situation. Suppose they both got the gun. They both pull out the gun. They both pull the trigger. The gun jams in one case and it doesn't jam in the other case. Uh huh. Or is one, there's, a, there's an example exactly like this where. You know, the person shoots the gun and the victim falls over just before the bullet goes by so they don't get shot. That's really luck. Right. There happens to be a banana peel. Exactly. And there's a banana peel in one bar and not in the other. Got it. Exactly. So then it's really a matter of luck whether the person gets killed or not. Oh, oh, I've got a good ironic yeah. twist. Yeah. If, if I were a, like an O. Henry 19th century uh, storyteller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The guy runs out of the bar yeah. thinking that he has killed someone oh, not right. aware that his victim slipped on a banana peel a split yeah. second before right and he goes off to a foreign country and yeah. goes and works in an orphanage for the rest of his life interesting and becomes a great person to expiate the guilt out of remorse but the guilt he's expiating didn't exist exactly yes so so what what is this guy he's expiating it's just an interest yeah. seems like an interesting guy um, but anyway, go back to the example. I was just excited by this story that's no, no, no. Actually, that head. makes it even better. 
That makes it even better because then what you want to say to this person is, you think you did this terrible thing and you didn't. But there are people who really resist these examples and still say, uh, no, look, if you want to make the moral judgment, you really just have to look at what they were intending and what they had in their heart and what they were willing to do. And the person who was willing to commit the murder, like attempted murder, that's just as bad as actual murder, even if the law draws a distinction between them. Okay, so there's that interesting Stanford experiment. Oh, yeah. Where almost everybody is willing yeah. to commit torture if you put them in the right circumstance. Yeah. So then you would say that almost everybody is a dirty, torturing dog. <laughs> They're just lucky not to have to look at themselves in the mirror. Yeah, my, is, is that what these other people think? Well, my understanding is that those results are a little controversial and it's not quite, it's, okay. people aren't quite that malleable, but they're more malleable than you might think. More people go along with stuff. So this is another version of this. More people yeah. commit war crimes yes. when they're in the army than we are comfortable acknowledging. That's for sure. And the, there's a book about these these German brigades who were shooting people. It was these massacres. and The Einsatzengruppen? Yeah, the Einsatzgruppen, that's right. And but they were Nazis. They were Nazis. They were soldiers. Nazis are moral. Well, ah, but Nazi see, soldiers. a lot of Nazi people soldiers. ended up being Nazis because they were in Germany in the 1930s. Ah. And those very same people with all their qualities, their character, their moral qualities, if they had been somewhere else, that they never would have done any of those things. Now, you also might want to put your foot down and say, yeah, but they were still, you know, if they were willing to do those things, they were just as bad as the people who actually did them. But actually, I think we reserve our moral judgment for the people who actually did those things. And it's not, we don't think it's an excuse that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time because they, after all, did that. But you have to take seriously what these uh, experiments purport to show, which is that a lot of people who never do anything terrible, and you would never dream of making these harsh moral judgments about them and sort of for counterfactual reasons, you know, like, well, they would have done it. You have no idea about that. Um, you just don't judge them harshly, but you do judge harshly the people who happen to be in the place where, for whatever reason, they went along with it. And they might have felt terrible about it. They might not have. But it was in the circumstantial bad luck. This is another kind of moral luck. We were talking about constitutive bad luck, the kind of person you are. But a lot of terrible things are done because people with all their flaws and shortcomings and weakness and whatever wind up doing terrible things that they wouldn't have done otherwise if they hadn't been there. So that's a serious uh, challenge to to the idea of moral control. Okay. So I I have a question about the I'm going to I'm going to say it in, in what I think is a philosophical way. Mm -hmm. Uh but I, I'm then I'll try and translate it. Well anyway, what I'm worried about is what is the role that moral judgment is playing in our lives? Ah, good question. And I'll I'll give yeah. an example. So there's a lot of people who want to be good athletes. They're either professional athletes or they just enjoy athletics. And they spend a lot of time doing um, athletic self-judgment. Mm -hmm. And many of them will admit, hey, you know what? I got a home run. But that was pretty lucky. Uh -huh. The pitch just happened to slide across the plate. Mm. And maybe some of my athletic performance is due to athletic luck. Yeah. And I would like to be aware of that and own up to it because my goal is to be the best baseball player I can. And that means maybe uh, maybe I should practice and make sure that I practice in situations where luck is taken out of it as much as uh -huh. possible. Like I should drill so that I'll become a better baseball player. Uh-huh. And and if someone said, no, nah, it was all me, man, you'd say, well, you're not seriously committed to being a good baseball player if you're going to claim credit 
were things that weren't up to you. Uh. I mean, you could be like, yeah, I guess I won the World Series, but it was pretty lucky that, you know, uh. that pitcher had a cold that day. <laughs> and you ought to be able to acknowledge that if you're really trying to, you know, be the best version of yourself you can. Uh. Um, why don't people take that attitude? I mean, this always comes up to me when people uh. discuss racism. Uh. And I've noticed mm. very often you say to someone, hey, that thing you said, um, you know, you used the word uh, Jew me down. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. kind of racist. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was racist. Well, who are you calling me racist? Mm -hmm. But but it's sort of like, hey, when you were when you were swinging, you were choking up on the bat a little. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't say, no, I wasn't. You'd say, well, thanks for letting me know. Uh -huh. <laughs> see, right? Because I'm yeah. committed to being a better batter. So why don't people feel like I'm committed to being a better non-racist or a better person oh, be like oh i didn't I know that thing about Jew me down thanks for letting me know buddy you're helping me be a proud morally exemplary person which is one of my goals oh, so wow. why do people respond to moral criticism by going into a shame cycle in this way uh, they're defensive. and does that mean that our moral judgment yeah the stakes well, are is, so is different our moral judgment sort of yeah. oh because this, well the, if you're a you're a baseball player. I mean, professional baseball player. The stakes are pretty high. They're pretty high. But but, yeah. but it seems to me there's a weird thing where like mm. our moral vocabulary is counterproductive because it seems to make people super defensive. Yeah, uh, that's right. So there's a lot of interesting um, differences between the cases. One that occurs to oh, me. Oh, what are they? Well, in sports, luck is not just sort of uh, pervasive. It's a kind of essential to a competition, you know, I mean, you throw the ball and you get a basket or you don't. Even the best players don't get a basket every single time. Some people have a good day and some people don't. And it's kind of the thrill of the spectacle that based on luck, one person wins and prevails over the other. So I think luck is actually an essential part of sports. If it weren't and you knew who the best players were, you would already know who's going to win. And that would rob it of the drama because the drama is going to be a lot of things that the players are trying to control and it's not in their control. So we like the fact that luck is part well, of it. Hang on. Yeah. When, when Michael Phelps appeared on the scene, yeah. we knew he was going to win a gold medal, didn't we? I mean, wasn't he the yeah. fastest swimmer on earth? Sure. But that, that in a way, as, as nice as that was because you could admire what a spectacular swimmer he was, it did rob the event of the drama it would have had otherwise. And a part of the drama is you don't know who's going to win. If you really always knew who's going to win, why watch? Is, it, is a Nobel Peace Prize like a gold medal for morality, do you think? <laughs> well, not, not in fact based on who's been given them, like Henry right, Kissinger. Right, right. I but, know who you're um, thinking of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what, what struck me as strange about sports is that it's obvious that luck is pervasive and luck is even essential to the activity, to the institution. And yet we praise and blame. We praise the winners and we hold people responsible even for mistakes that happen that really can't be completely in their control. It's obvious that you can blame somebody for a really stupid mistake, like they weren't paying attention or something like that. But in the best of circumstances, even the best players sometimes drop the ball. And if they do, you sort of shake your finger at them and you say, ah, I can't believe you did that. Oh, 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 I, I thought of something. I, yeah. I thought of something I want to ask you. Yeah. Is stupidity good. a moral failing? Ah, good. No, well, not according to Kant. This sentiment is not hard to find if you look around. Like, I have to confess, I still haven't watched, or maybe I want to say sat through Forrest Gump. But Forrest Gump, uh, as I understand it, is a kind of morally pure simpleton. 
right? Yes. And it doesn't matter that he's basically stupid or retarded or whatever you want to people say. People love that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, it's highly Why do sentimental. people love that? It's so sentimental, but they love it. Why do people love the virtuous moron? I think it beca- is precisely because, well, what they want to be able to think is that people can be extremely brilliant and bright and smart and terrible people, like villains. Right. 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 And they want to preserve that image of the evil villain who's not redeemed by their cleverness or intellect. Because, because after all, all that matters is the pure heart, which you can have even if you're a little child or, you know, dumb or whatever. So that's another reflection of this more traditional idea of morality, that it just depends on the will and not the intellect. Like the pure heart. Yeah. I mean, I feel very torn about this, you know, because yeah. I don't really believe that. But I understand the motivation. I don't think you should just think because people are simple-minded that they're ethically or morally flawed. I mean, it just does depend on what they do. Are they kind? Are they sympathetic? How do they behave? Oh, you know, there's that. I agree with you, but I'm going I'm to yeah. say the, the comical criticism of that view first yeah. that it occurred to me. Yeah. There used to be this sign that said... Um, Practice random acts of kindness. Right, 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 right. And and it occurred to me that like someone's walking down the street and they see a man holding a gun mm. to another man's head, and then he slips mm. and he drops the gun. Uh-huh. And you practice a random act of kindness and you pick up the gun and hand it to him and go on your way. <laughs> and I think, well, that random act of kindness. No, don't don't practice random acts of kindness. Or I suppose or I suppose I mean, a more pure example is a tough man is punching an elderly woman to get her purse. And you're practicing a random act of kindness. So you say heads. I'm going to tell help the man. Oh, really? Tails, I'm going to help the woman. Uh. You flip it, and then it comes up heads, and you help the man. So you random. practice a random yeah. act of kindness. <laughs> but that's not good. We don't, we don't want random acts of kindness. That's we, a rather strict interpretation of random, though. <laughs> Coin toss. A random. Yeah. But, but I mean, and, it, and it's if you do think about it, yeah. it's just like, uh, well, there's there's five billion people on Earth. <laughs> I'm going to throw. I'm going to have my computer tell me who I'm going to help. So and. Yeah. No, you pick your own example of someone who shouldn't be helped, but you help that person. No, no. I think random there is uh, really means impulsive because it's playing on the phrase random acts of violence in which what we're really describing is impulsive acts of violence where people just lash out in anger. And the idea then is supposed to be uh, if you do something impulsively, make it something good so that you can impulsively help somebody just spontaneously spur the moment, just help somebody cross the street or or give a kind word or something like that. And without reflection, without having to think it through just sort of intuitively so here's the thing here's the thing that worries me and and i can't tell because i really do like the idea of living my life from my heart Mm -hmm. like leading my life from my heart and putting my mind in service of my heart i do like that idea and i do think it's sort of true but then i think about an example like the following which is somebody told me that in their child's elementary school class there was a rule that if you if you invite more than three children to your birthday party, you must invite the whole class. Uh. And the argument was that otherwise you're creating kids who are going to feel bad because they weren't invited. Mm. And I thought, that's really true. And that teacher was a wise person Mm. because the little kid will not know that Mm -hmm. because a little kid has not had that much life experience and doesn't have that much practice looking at the unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. So, when when that little kid invited those three kids and then the fourth kid, that little kid was simply being impulsively kind. Yeah. But with the adult wisdom of the teacher, uh-huh. they said, you know, that impulsive kindness 
actually may have cruel consequences. So here's here's something I feel very conflicted about, which is mm-hmm. that I also feel very strongly about the value of compassion. But mm-hmm. Nietzsche, who is very critical of compassion or pity, depending on how you want to translate the German mm-hmm. word, mitleid. Um, mitleid. Uh, mitleid. He made a point that, uh, as he saw it, the stricter you are about demanding compassion, the more sort of merciless you're going to be about people who fail to exhibit it. Because if you think that people are failing to have compassion, that they are blameworthy, that they're being cruel, and that you have to stamp that out. And that's what creates moral intolerance. And I do think that's what Bernard Williams had in mind, too, since he was a a fan of Nietzsche in some ways. In a very Nietzschean way, he was saying the problem with morality is that it is obsessed with blame. And it sees too much of our lives in terms of moral blame. And Nietzsche expresses this somewhere else when he, he says something like, be very suspicious of those who have an impulse to punish. The impulse to punish or blame or hold responsible can be very destructive. So when Bernard Williams was imagining the case of Gauguin, I think he was imagining the moral judgment, the pure moral judgment for which the consequences are really are irrelevant, which is just condemning Gauguin unconditionally, because this was a terrible thing to do. We might agree with that, actually. I mean, I don't know. I've got a biography of Gauguin on my shelf that I haven't actually read because I want to know what the actual facts of his life were. Like, how terrible was this? In the novel, he's a real bastard. I mean, he, his friend says, you know, your family, they won't be able to support themselves. You know, the stakes were higher. It's not uh, just like one professional right. leaving another right. professional to her career. It's like, right. how were they going to, how was she going to feed the children? That kind of thing. And in the novel, anyway, right. the protagonist who's supposed to be Gauguin says, well, let them try. You know, it's their problem, not mine. Uh, and that's really heartless. Right. So, but. Right. And Faulkner said, uh, the ode on the Grecian urn is worth any number of old ladies. Oh, so he had a similar. Terrible. Similar yeah. Attitude. But. On the other side of this, I think Williams's point was you are missing something if you just stick to the purely moral judgment that this was wrong no matter what. Because after all, this might have been Gauguin's only way to feel that his life was worth living, is that he followed his vocation, did his art. And who's to say that it's better that you do the morally right thing and live a life that you feel is meaningless and empty? So I think for Williams, it was a way of challenging the sort of tyranny of morality and moral judgment in our lives, rather than introducing a possibility of strictly moral luck. It's more like there's more things than morality sometimes to consider when considering what the best life is or what the best thing to do is or what the the right kind of person is to be. Um, That's really challenging. Uh, It's a very Nietzschean thought. And then I'm left with thinking... So an interesting thing about... Oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, and then I'm left thinking, well... But Nietzsche seems just very hostile to compassion or pity, and I feel like it's absolutely vital. So how can I be compassionate without being morally intolerant of the multiple different ways that people have of trying to pursue a decent life and flourish and feel that their lives are worth living? That's that's very hard. I mean, the first thing I want to say is that in a weird way, Nietzsche and Williams seem like they're being even more moral and even more compassionate because they're having compassion for those who lack compassion, right? But they may be exercising the kind of compassion you were pointing out is very morally dangerous. Right. What if they're just putting what if they're just putting it into the mix? What if they're saying um, with some degree of humility, 
Yes. Look, I know on the movie poster, you're going to root for Gauguin's abandoned kid and not Gauguin. But maybe we should be a little more humble in our moral judgments and be like, it's a complicated world. And before we... I mean, look, I feel the impulse to string people up is an understandable impulse of Mm self-protection. And I find those times when I'm scared of the consequences... I get more angry and more punitive. Yeah, and those right. times when I yep. feel pretty safe, I'm more able to see both sides of the situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's not how morality has understood itself traditionally. But I think that's, a, again, a very Nietzschean sort of idea is that morality comes from a kind of fear and a weakness and a vulnerability that the one weapon maybe you're going to have against your oppressor or your enemy is to wield this kind of moral judgment. Right. But I think, uh, uh, unlike Nietzsche, I think that that's a, a totally understandable part of life. Sure, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I think, like, if there are times when I'm, like, in order to protect myself and in order to protect the people that I, I care about, I get angry, I think that's okay. Sure. I think it's okay to get angry in the service yeah, of self-protection. Yeah, uh... I think almost everybody would say it's okay sometimes. And I think Nietzsche was sort of original in thinking that you should always be suspicious of your own impulse to anger or how you express it or if you can't let go of it. Let me put it that way. I think what he thought was momentary, impulsive, situational anger, yeah, it's just a part of being a human being. But morality is sort of defined by this constant readiness to a sort of uh, moral outrage or anger, which is going to be unconditional and not sensitive to the nuance of the situations and so on, but just frozen in the form of moral principles that are unmovable. That's the critique. That's the criticism. But I'm not a Nietzschean. I mean, I don't agree with him completely about this because I feel like it's in genuine conflict with something absolutely indispensable, which is compassion, just as you were saying. I think the compassion, though, it's hard to see that uh, you can be compassionate without it's just pushing you towards a sort of almost unbearable moral outrage at the all the forces that are wreaking so much suffering on the world. Like Ivan Karamazov, I think, has this kind of compassion. He's in a state of total outrage directed at God for letting there be so much suffering in the world. And it's almost keeping him from wanting to live because he can't stand it. But it's because he cannot see past the unredeemable suffering of children, innocent children, and so on and so on. He's obsessed with it. There's a real danger of going overboard with your compassion so that it leads you to want to tell the whole world to go to hell. Right. Sorry, that was rather dramatic. but that's... <laughs> No, I think it's, it is, it's worthwhile. Um, let's go back uh, whether Taylor wants to tell the whole world to go to hell um, after this break. <laughs> Okay, we're back. Um, we're going to wrap up this issue of moral luck. I mean, we're probably not going to wrap it up. But yeah. So, Taylor, let's say someone says, I'm so angry at how innocent children suffer yeah. that I want to destroy the whole world. Yeah. What would you say? 
I'd say take a deep breath. <laughs> Realize there's only so much you can do to alleviate the sufferings of the world. Don't take it all on your own shoulders. Be compassionate when you can be. And yeah, try to resist the temptation of rage, moral outrage, because it's destroying you too, possibly. Um, you have to protect yourself against that. Right, so exercise some self-compassion. Yeah, exactly, that's right. And something like equanimity, which means it might seem like insensitivity, but there's a kind of equanimity, which is just humility. Like you, you cannot relieve all the suffering of the world. There's no way anybody can do that. I mean, I know that sounds maybe a little glib, but uh, I we got here from moral luck because the idea was that the Gauguin example is an example of Bernard Williams wanting to say, be a little bit more morally flexible about your judgment of Gauguin because the situation is complex. There's lots of different interests. But his philosophical point was to say morality is one of several considerations. It's not... Uh, shouldn't be the only and overriding consideration in your judgment of Gauguin. Because as you were saying a bit ago, it's like the people who just condemn Gauguin do so because they think that whatever came out of his artistic vocation just pales in comparison. It's of virtually zero value compared to the way he treated his family. You still might think he did the wrong thing and think that that's too dogmatic. It's too simple. Right. And yet, I sort of feel like... Um... If Gauguin came to us at the end of his life and said, I feel really sad, I wish my children knew me, and all these paintings, all these awards, yeah. they don't really mean very much to me. Yeah. I think we would say, "Right, you're on to something, Paul, and let's talk about it. I don't think you'd say, ah, don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. Look at all the great, you don't worry. You great paintings, buddy. No. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think I would even want someone to say that yeah. to me. Like if I was like, oh man, I spent too much time doing podcasts. I should have spent time right. with no. my kids. And then if someone responded to this aspiration of me to have sort of a, yeah. what they call in the Bible, less of a heart of stone and more of a heart of flesh, uh -huh. I think I would want them to help me on my path and not be like, oh, it was a really good podcast, man. I got a lot of downloads. Don't beat yourself up. Right. Like, yep. like in a sense, yep. I feel like, like selling ourselves short or being empathetic, kind, loving people is is being cruel to ourselves. Sure. Like we should ask to be warm-hearted beings. Yeah. Do you know anything, Taylor, about the concept of um, reparative justice as opposed to um, retaliatory justice? Reparative? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know anything about it in any expert kind of way. I mean, I, I think I know what you're talking about when you say the phrase, but... Um... Like making amends. Yeah, because or... I wonder. I wonder if maybe morality got off of the wrong start it, when it it kind of said, "Well, who shall be saved and who shall be yeah. damned?" is the question of right. morality. And maybe the question of morality is more like, "What do we do next yeah. now that this personal relationship ah, has been broken?" Interesting. How how do we move forward as a community? Um, so it's not that we take Gauguin and we throw him either right. imaginatively or actually into prison, but we sort of try and track down the old man and yeah. his abandoned children and, and see if we can get them in the same room and move forward together in some way that's, that's more more. That's a very beautiful good. thought. And <laughs> it's actually good, the interesting you. thing is that it kind of echoes what Nietzsche said preceded morality, which was instead of retribution, something like restitution. I guess from from my way of thinking, it helps Gauguin too. 
it helps Paul as well as young, you know, Sparky Gauguin. I don't know the name of <laughs> Gauguin's kid. Almost certainly he was not Sparky. Um, yeah, Biff. Biff and Tommy. But yeah. I, I think the Biff, <laughs> Biff and Tommy, because I feel when I look at those times in my life when I sort of had more of a heart of stone, I, I kind of want to go through the difficult process of, of, of shame and asking for forgiveness yeah. and all that. Yeah. Um, well, there's two things. One is like paying a debt, which was what Nietzsche thinks preceded morality. Mm -hmm. And we still talk that way when people mm -hmm. say that if they'd done some time in prison, they paid their debt to society. There's still a transactional... Yeah. a promise made is a debt unpaid. Uh -huh. The trail has its own stern code. Ah, nice. It's Robert Service, there you go. the philosopher. So... Uh, anyway, so there's debt. So if, but know. if it's just an economic transaction, it can be robbed of a lot of its sort of human feeling and stuff. But there is there is that. Mm -hmm. I think the kind of thing you're describing, too, it might lead toward a position where there's a, an apology and a forgiveness. Here's, here's another thought about all these scenarios. Yes. I think a lot of what we think about them is retrospective based on how people do end up assessing what they've done. Because the person, imagine the Gauguin who really at the end says, to hell with them. I did what I wanted, and I'm glad I did it, and I have no regrets. You would think much worse, even no matter what a great artist he was. You'd think, well, he was a great artist, but he was an asshole. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you imagine this kind of Gauguin who, who had at least deeply mixed feelings or even regret, you know, you'd think, okay, well, then the, it's their character shines through in their subsequent reaction uh, that I think can retrospectively change your assessment of the action. So here's a here's a really microscopic case that has occurred to me in my daily life sometimes. If somebody goes through a door ahead of me and the door slams in front of me, so I have mm -hmm. to open it, you know, uh, um, and uh, what I think of what they've just done depends a lot on how they react if they notice that that's what happened. Because if they go through and the door slams in my face and then they look back and they couldn't care less, I think, wow, what a jerk. Yes. But if then they look back and they say, oh, sorry, sorry, here, 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 uh, didn't mean to do that or whatever, then you think, okay, fine, they didn't. Because now um, it might have been – now, it might have been the very same action. Maybe that – the way I described it sounds like two different cases. They knew it or they didn't know it. But so it was the same thoughtless action, but they come to immediately regret it and say, oh, sorry, I should have held the door for you or something like that. Um, you can easily erase that because you think, look, this is a decent person, and yes. I'm judging what they did based on what now I know about their character, about how they're prone to see these things. So I think judgments of character are far more important than I think uh, some some moralists have often thought. Yeah, I think you want to know, the person is a restaurant. Did you just happen to get a bad burger, yeah. or is there something messed up in the kitchen? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what's going on under the hood there? Yeah, exactly. What's going on in the kitchen there? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, that's good. That's okay. nice. Yeah. Well, well, this has been cool. Yeah. Um, I think I'm less terrified by this issue, but I still find it... Um, yeah. It kind of stops me in my tracks. It's a hard one. Me too, and I think this is the kind of problem that maybe we should never be uh, fully... Um, relieved of the terror anxiety because it's a deeply unsettling fact of life yeah. that yeah. that it's always haunting us um, whether we're in control of even what kinds of people we are or what we do or how things are going to turn out and what it says about us. Yeah, and I also think there's an interesting question here which we might want to get into on another occasion about what are the things we do and what are the things we want to teach people? Because it could mm -hmm. be that we always fall short, but when we're teaching, we adopt a certain wishful thinking and we teach our children how we'd like them to be, not how we are. Uh -huh. yeah. And I think one yeah. of the interesting things about Bernard Williams mm. 
was he tended to teach children how he was rather than how he thought people should teach children. Huh. Like huh. he 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 was more honest. Huh. He didn't he didn't take the role of the moralist philosopher. Right. Uh, and I found that uh, lovable about him. Yes, yes, yes. I know what you mean. Yep. I think you knew him okay. a little better than I did, probably. But um, he had a very humane view of things, including philosophy, yeah, yeah. I think. Okay. Well, this yeah. has been a delightful hour, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it at home. Uh, I hope I'm lucky enough to have said something that helps you in some way. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Okay. Okay. Peace. Bye-bye. Bye. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen.